0: This podcast deals with themes of an adult nature and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. 1978 was a year for firsts. Louise Brown, the first test shoe baby, was born in July of that year. On the 12th of September, Janet Parker, an English medical photographer, was the last person to contract and die from smallpox. The Global Eradication Programme had all but wiped out natural infections of the disease. Later that month, in the United States, a 15-year-old girl was hitchhiking through California when she was abducted by a violent and sadistic offender. Taken to a desolate canyon... She was attacked, maimed, and discarded in a concrete culvert, left to slowly bleed out and die. But she was far from dead. This is the harrowing survival story of Mary Vincent. I am your host, Rory Jane McCormick. The theme of this season is captivity, and this is Propensity, a true crime anthology podcast. The story I'm about to tell you is gruesome, violent and devastating. I usually give content warnings for the most disturbing parts of a case. But in this episode, it's hard to differentiate between the worst parts. So I'll just say from the outset that there are parts of this case that are very difficult to listen to. This case involves abduction, sexual assault, attempted and actual murder and bodily mutilation. Listener discretion is advised. Mary Vincent was drifting in and out of consciousness. She was in excruciating pain. She didn't know it yet, but along with her other injuries, she had four broken ribs. This was from when her attacker had flung her down a 30-foot or 9-metre-deep embankment. She was losing a lot of blood, and her body was in shock. She was cold and wanted nothing more than to sleep. She looked down at where her forearms had once been. A sludge of dirt, blood and muscle congealed on the ground below her. She heard a voice within her telling her that she couldn't sleep. That she had to survive. She packed her forearms with dirt to help stem the bleeding and forced herself to stand despite her agonising injuries. She was completely naked, bleeding, and was missing her hands and forearms below the elbows. Mary heard the faint hum of traffic in the far distance. It was a slow rumble, tempered by the walls jutting out from the ravine. She reasoned that if there was a freeway or road, then she might have a chance to get help and live. She didn't know what time it was, but there was daylight. The sun mercilessly beat down on her as she pulled herself out of the steep canyon, one uneven step at a time. She held her bloody stumps high to minimize blood loss and prevent her muscles and sinews from falling out of the open wounds. It would be nightfall before she made her way out of Del Puerto Canyon, naked, bleeding, and broken. Mary later said of the darkness that it was, quote, "...very, very dark, and I could barely see. Had it not been for the moon and the stars, I wouldn't have been able to see anything." End quote. It had taken her most of the day and much of the night to finally reach Interstate Highway 5, the source of the sounds that she had been following. Mary walked until the sun began to rise, Finally, she saw a red convertible car driving towards her with a male passenger and driver. She called out to them to help her, but they drove right past her. In retrospect, Mary didn't blame the two men for refusing to stop. She later said of the incident, "...think about it. I have no hands now, and I'm covered head to toe in blood." I look like something from a Fright Night movie. End quote. After the first car passed her by, she said that she became more and more convinced that she was going to die out there by the side of the road after she had already come so far. Mary walked for an estimated three miles or five kilometres before she saw another vehicle. Soon after this, the headlights of an old truck came into view. At this stage, Mary was walking along the middle of the highway. The truck stopped and a couple on their honeymoon got out, horrified by what they saw. They had taken a wrong turn and were not even supposed to be on that road at that time. I really believe that there must have been some kind of serendipity here for that couple to be out on that road at that time to find Mary, when they were supposed to be somewhere else entirely. The couple wrapped her in a blanket and drove as fast as they could to a nearby airport where they called paramedics. Mary was airlifted to hospital by a rescue helicopter. By the time she reached the hospital, she had lost over half of the blood in her body. She would spend the next month in hospital. She was lucky to be alive. Mary Vincent was born in Las Vegas, Nevada in 1963. Her parents had seven children together. Lucy was a casino dealer who served in the military and her father, Herb, a gambling machine repairman. Mary was extremely creative and was an avid dancer. Between 1977 and 1978, Mary's home life became tense. Lucy and Herb were going through marital difficulties and this coupled with strict rules that Mary and her siblings were expected to adhere to, made Mary seek freedom outside the confines of her family home. According to her mother, Mary began wearing makeup and cutting classes at school, before ultimately running away. In early summer 1978, Mary left home with her boyfriend and ran away to Sausalito, a small city in Marin County just across the Golden Gate Strait from San Francisco. The two lived in her boyfriend's car until he was arrested for allegedly raping a teenage girl. After her boyfriend's arrest, Mary found herself alone. She spent some time sleeping in unlocked cars and abandoned buildings, not quite ready to return to her volatile home life. She made her way to Soquel where she stayed with an uncle for a brief period. The 29th of September 1978 was a Friday. Exiles' Kiss You All Over was the number one song in the United States. National Lapoon's Animal House was the number one film at the U.S. box office. The previous evening, Pope John Paul I had retired to his papal quarters at 10 p.m. The next morning, on what should have been his 35th day as Pope, he was found dead in his bed of a heart attack. Fifteen-year-old Mary Vincent bid farewell to her uncle in the village of Soquel and began hitchhiking south. The source material contains conflicting information. For example, Mary's Wikipedia entry states that she travelled to her grandfather's home and stayed there for a while and was hitchhiking back to her parents' home in Las Vegas. Other sources suggest that Mary was travelling south towards LA rather than east towards Nevada. Other sources state that she was in Berkeley when she took the ride from the man who would become her attacker. Mary was interviewed by the I programme for an episode about her story in 2009. In it, she implied that she had been hitchhiking from California back home to her family in Nevada. If Mary had spent the summer in Sausalito, it would make sense for her to travel the relatively short distance south to Soquel, where her uncle lived. She may have already spent some time with her grandfather in Corona, a small city south of Los Angeles, and now wanted to go home. I think part of the confusion is that the driver who picked her up said he would take her as far as Los Angeles, only an hour's drive or less from her grandfather's home. Whereas if she was going to Las Vegas via LA, it would still be closer than where she was in Modesto, but still quite a bit out of her way. For the purposes of this episode, we're going to take it that Mary ran away from home in Las Vegas in early summer 1978, lived out of her boyfriend's car in Sausalito for much of the summer months, found herself alone and slept rough for a short period before staying with her uncle in Soquel. In between all of this, it's likely that she also paid her grandfather a visit, or at least intended to once she reached LA it seems that her ultimate destination was Las Vegas. Mary stated that she had already gotten several short rides that morning, but none seemed willing to take her where she needed to go. She eventually arrived in Stanislaus County, just outside of Modesto, north of where she had begun her journey. By that afternoon, Mary was exhausted. She stood on a major thoroughfare frequented by other hitchhikers holding a sign indicating that she was travelling south she was flanked by two male hitchhikers who held a sign indicating that they were going the same direction as her during the mid part of the last century hitchhiking was viewed as a legitimate and safe form of transport primarily used by young people although we now know that this wasn't always the case When I think of hitchhiking, I think of a bygone practice fraught with inherent dangers. When I was in my early 20s, I travelled around Southeast Asia and took chances that I would never have taken at home. But still, I never hitchhiked. It just seemed far too dangerous for me. Both as a woman, trusting my life and safety to any stranger who happened to stop by the roadside, and now as a driver, allowing a complete stranger into my vehicle, not knowing their background or intentions. I can say this now with confidence because I'm older and wiser and generally take less risks with my safety than I did when I was a naive 20-something. But really, this argument is a moot point, as there are so few opportunities to hitchhike or pick up strangers on the side of the road these days. So much so that I've never even encountered a time when I had to weigh my options. We've all heard the urban legends of rogue hitchhikers who are not as they seem. Over decades, as individual car ownership has increased and stories of serial killers stalking highways for victims have become mainstream, hitchhiking as a practice has all but fallen out of favour. We've grown accustomed to heeding the warnings not to stop on rural roadways for people seemingly in distress, lest it be a secret ambush or a criminal gang or isolated cult waiting to pounce. The 1960s and 70s were a very different era. Most people didn't have access to a vehicle of their own. Public transportation was often poor, limited or non-existent. It was a time before smartphones and internet and having a digital footprint. You could pack a bag and hitch your way across a country or even half a continent. You could buy a new identity and start your life afresh. You could literally disappear without a trace. And no one would know if you were alive or dead. In the United States, the creation of the interstate highway system made long-distance travel possible in a way that it had never been before. But with it came increased dangers. These dangers were widely known about, but hitchhiking was so ubiquitous at the time that the risk factors weren't always taken seriously by the public. In the early 1970s, the FBI launched a campaign to caution the public against picking up hitchhikers. A 1973 poster from this campaign used the headline, Death in Disguise. They addressed drivers with the opening line, To the American Motorist and warned them that hitchhikers may be masquerading as a friendly traveller, but in reality, could be a sex maniac, escaped criminal, or vicious murderer. And these are all direct quotes from the poster. Author Ginger Strand writes about another campaign that targeted young women, with police officers handing out cards that read, quote, if I were a rapist, you'd be in trouble. These cards were handed out to hitchhiking women or potential female hitchhikers at Rutgers University. While not illegal in most of Europe, there are many US states that outright ban hitchhiking. Many countries have made hitchhiking illegal only on motorways and major roads. Either way, hitchhiking now is quite rare. There's definitely a correlation between hitchhiking and the proliferation of serial killers operating in the United States and Canada in the 1970s and 80s. Hitchhiking provided an established pipeline to connect vulnerable people to potential predators. Trapped in a moving vehicle, the predator doesn't need to hunt and stalk their prey as their prey have voluntarily sought them out and entered their vehicle. Some examples of this can be seen in the case of Colleen Stan, an experienced hitchhiker who agreed to arrive from Cameron Hooker as his wife Janice and their young child were also in the vehicle. Similarly, convicted serial killers Fred and Rose West often picked up lone female hitchhikers. Caroline Owens was one such victim and others such as Felicity Nightingale narrowly escaped their clutches. Now back to the day of the abduction. It was Friday afternoon and Mary, tired from being on her feet all day and flagging down vehicle after vehicle, was desperate to get home to her family. Mary, along with the two male hitchhikers she had met, were all heading south and were happy to travel at least some of the way together. Even though hitchhiking was common, Young people at the time knew that there was safety in numbers. A blue van pulled up beside the trio and they asked for a ride. The middle-aged driver was balding, overweight and wore a blue jumpsuit. He said that he only had space for one passenger and indicated that it had to be Mary. Mary said that inside of the van was empty and that there was plenty of room for the other hitchhikers. The two young men pulled her to the side and said to her, you shouldn't go in there. They told her that if this driver was only willing to take a solo female hitchhiker and a 15-year-old child at that, then there was something creepy and unsafe about the situation. They advised her to refuse the lift and wait for another ride. Mary's exhaustion and desperation to get home caused her to ignore the warnings of her fellow travellers. She said that she, quote, just couldn't live another day out alone, end quote. She said in that moment she didn't, quote, think about what type of person he was or the situation. I was just tired and he seemed like a grandfather type figure. In a 1988 article for People, Diana Wagoner and Michelle Green suggest that a runaway with street smarts might have been alarmed by the situation. But they describe Mary as being dangerously naive despite her prior wandering. Mary climbed into the front seat of the blue van. The driver introduced himself as Larry and said that he'd been heading to Reno, Nevada, but would take a detour and drive her to L.A. Soon after getting into the van, Mary lit a cigarette. The smoke caused her to sneeze and Larry placed his hand on the back of her neck and said creepily, let's see if you're sick. Mary recoiled from this unwanted physical touch. There were other sexual advances made towards Mary, but she shrugged them off. At one point, the driver pulled her towards him and Mary pulled away positioning herself as close to the passenger door as she could. Mary would later say that Larry told her he had to stop off at his home. At the time, he lived in San Pablo, a small city north of Berkeley. His excuse for this impromptu change was to pick up laundry. Mary even offered to help Larry carry the laundry to the van. The source material is unclear on whether or not the two made it to San Pablo. It was soon after this that he began drinking from a milk carton filled with liquor. The fatigue was overwhelming for Mary and she closed her eyes and drifted off to sleep. When she awoke, it was almost dark. She was alone in a moving vehicle with a strange man. There were no other cars on the road. She immediately sensed a shift in the atmosphere. Her intuition told her that something had changed. It was dark outside, and Mary noticed that the road signs and markers indicated that they were travelling in the opposite direction from where they were supposed to be going. Mary began to panic a little. She reached around her and found a sharpened stick in the passenger foot well. And pointing the stick at him, she said, quote, You're going the wrong way, and you know you're going the wrong way. End quote. Larry's demeanour seemed to soften slightly. He told her that he was quote, just an honest man who made an honest mistake. End quote. He assured her that he wasn't going to hurt her. The sun had set and Larry pulled off the freeway and began driving down an isolated road near a canyon He told his frightened passenger that he had to relieve himself Mary's instincts told her that she was in trouble She was in an isolated place with an erratic stranger and no other signs of life around her She decided that she would run The man who had picked her up was older and unhealthy. Whereas she was young and healthy, and more importantly, faster than he would be on his feet. Looking down, she realised that the laces on the tennis shoes she was wearing had opened. The driver had already left the vehicle, so she stepped outside into the night and bent down beside the van to tie her laces. Without warning, Mary felt a blinding pain at the back of her skull. The man who had called himself Larry had hit her in the back of the head with a sledgehammer. She felt several more blows, this time with fists. She temporarily lost consciousness. He dragged her back to the van, slid the door open and bundled her inside. This next part is particularly difficult to listen to. He removed her clothes, tied her up, and proceeded to rape her repeatedly. He told her not to scream and to obey him, or he would kill her. Mary told the I Survive program that he raped her six times before he fell asleep. She said that she was unable to escape as she was completely naked lying in the back of the van with her hands bound by rope behind her back. She said that this was one of the darkest times for her and that she wanted to die. She said, quote, That was the worst feeling I've ever felt. That's all I was thinking. Please, God, kill me now. End quote. Mary begged him to let her go. She asked him to set her free. She told him, let me go, just set me free. I won't tell anyone. When her attacker woke up, he got into the driver's seat, still naked, and drove further into the canyon, before raping and assaulting her again. He removed the ropes and ordered her to drink an unknown concoction of alcohol, or else he would kill her. Soon after this, she blacked out again. When she woke up, it was daylight and he was dragging her by the arm out of the van and along the dirt. He said, quote, you want to be free, I'll set you free, End quote. He removed a hatchet from the toolbox in the back of his van. He swung the hatchet at Mary's left arm and she began to fall. She said that she was holding on to him tightly and couldn't understand why she was still falling. She looked at her arm and, quote, there was nothing there, just blood spurting out, end quote. She says that she felt all of the pain, quote, the sharpness, the burning. And when my blood was leaking out of my body, I felt the hot ooze just flowing out of me. I felt everything. I was aware of everything. And the pain was so excruciating. End quote. Mary's left arm was severed below her elbow. The man then grabbed her right arm, but she was kicking and screaming and tightly clutching his bicep. She hoped that someone might hear her screams, but there was no one around. He hacked away again. She fell backwards. From her position on the ground, she saw his silhouette flailing against the bright sky. For a moment, it looked as if he was dancing. She soon realised that he was trying to get something off him. She realised, in horror, that her right hand and forearm were still clasping his arm. But she was nowhere near where he stood. After he had hacked off her arms, Mary says that she believes that her attacker thought she was dead. He dragged her to the end of a cliff and threw her over the side. He then climbed down after her and stuffed her body into a concrete culvert in the ravine below. Mary says that she just lay there bleeding to death. Before he left, he heard her attacker say, Okay, now you're free. He seemed to be laughing to himself as he said it. Tampa Bay Times journalist Sue Carlton described Singleton as showing chilling contempt for Mary Vincent in this and throughout all of his dealings with her. Mary lay there in the concrete tunnel for what must have seemed like an eternity. She didn't know if her attacker had left or was waiting at the top of the embankment watching her. Her body wanted to sleep, but she heard a loud voice telling her that she couldn't sleep. She said that the voice told her that he was going to do this to someone else and she couldn't let that happen. So she stood up and, quote, crawled back up the cliff without any hands. I needed to survive. I couldn't let him do this to someone else. End quote. Mary spent several hours in surgery as medical staff battled to save her life. When she first woke up from surgery, she gave detailed statements to the police and worked with a sketch artist to create a composite likeness of her attacker. Mary's description was so accurate that within 10 days of Mary's attack, A member of the public had seen the circulated sketch and reported their neighbour and friend to authorities as a possible match. That man was Lawrence Singleton. Mary spent more than a month in hospital recovering and was fitted with prosthetics within two weeks of her attack. When police searched Larry Singleton's San Pablo home, they found evidence of burnt clothing, and cigarettes that appeared to belong to Mary. They also discovered that Singleton had recently cleaned his van and removed and washed the carpet with the help of a neighbour. Lawrence Larry Singleton was born in July 1927 in Tampa, Florida. Not much is known about his early life, but as a young man, he found work as a merchant seaman. We don't know what his profession was at the time of Mary's attack, or if he was even working. He married a woman named Shirley, with whom he had a daughter, Deborah. The two divorced in 1971. His second marriage was in 1976 to a nurse, Mary Collins, but the two separated after just two years. We don't know if this was prior to or as a consequence of his attack on Mary. Singleton was a heavy drinker and had a previous conviction for contributing to the delinquency of a minor, although we don't actually know what this means in terms of the crime that was committed. Earlier that summer, he had fought heavily with his teenage daughter, Deborah. Deborah recalls that he had been physically abusive to both her and her mother. By the end of summer 1978, Singleton was estranged from his daughter. At the time of his attack on 15-year-old Mary, he was 50 years old. Singleton's trial took place in early 1979. This was less than five months after his arrest. The prosecution played Singleton's recorded statement to the court. In it, he describes Mary as, quote, a $10 a night whore, end quote, who threatened to falsely accuse him of rape if he didn't do what she demanded. He said that he had picked up two other hitchhikers named Larry and Pedro and that Mary had done drugs with and had sex with both of them. He added that this other Larry must have been the one who attacked her. Mary was a key witness for the prosecution She bravely testified against the man who had attacked, mutilated and tried to murder her. She told the court the following, I was attacked, I was raped and my hands were cut off. He left me to die. On the stand, Mary referred to Singleton as her attacker. This is how she has referred to him ever since. During her testimony, Mary gestured with her prosthetic arms and stated to the court that he did this, referring to Singleton. Mary recalls that she was very frightened because her attacker, Lawrence Singleton, was just a few feet away from her while she was in the witness stand. As she passed by the defendant to leave, he whispered menacingly to her, Quote, "'If it's the last thing I do,' I will finish the job. End quote. In March 1979, a San Diego jury convicted Singleton of kidnapping, mayhem, attempted murder, forcible rape, sodomy, and forced oral copulation. Singleton was sentenced to 14 years in prison, which was the longest sentence available under California law at the time. He was also ordered to pay his victim... million US dollars in compensation in a civil judgment. But Mary did not see any of those funds, as Singleton had no income source. The judge in the case said the following during sentencing If I had the power, I would send him to prison for the rest of his natural life. A prison psychologist in 1979. Wrote the following in his notes about Singleton quote, psychiatric diagnosis, paranoid personality, severe with schizoid features, alcohol a factor by history, end quote. A 1988 People article described Singleton as, quote, one of the most despised convicts in the state's history, end quote. Mary said that she never knew that there could be people like Larry Singleton in the world. She says that she prays to God that she never meets another one. In the aftermath of her attack, Mary struggled to come to terms with what had happened to her. She had little choice but to return to the family home and the circumstances that had caused her to run away to begin with. Her parents argued frequently and didn't seem able to deal with or process what their daughter had been through. Mary felt that her parents didn't understand her. She said that her parents, quote, were more interested in what they felt about what had happened to me rather than what I felt, end quote. Her father, Herb, began collecting guns and creating elaborate plots in which he would kill Singleton. Mary's parents enrolled her in a school for disabled students, but most of her friends had abandoned her, either too afraid to bring up the attack or else worried that they would be tarnished by association. After her high school graduation, Mary sought a new start in Washington State. She struggled with stress, depression and an eating disorder. By the mid-1980s, Mary had a son, Luke, from a past relationship. She eventually married and had a second son, Alan, but her life was fraught with difficulties. This included divorce, having her home foreclosed on, and homelessness. Eventually, Mary met and married Bob Clayton, and the two have been together for several decades. Mary dreamed of being a dancer. But soon after Singleton's attack, portions of her leg were used to reconstruct her arms. This impacted her ability to dance. When speaking about her ordeal, Mary refers to her attack as the accident and the man who attempted to murder her as her attacker. Diana Wagoner and Michelle Green interviewed Mary in 1988. They described her as being consumed by anger and haunted by cold sweat dreams about what had happened to her. The pair repeatedly referred to psychic aftershocks to describe some of the long-lasting, non-physical impact of her harrowing ordeal. Speaking in 1988, Mary told the journalists, I'll never get over this. In another interview, Mary said that Singleton destroyed everything about her. Quote, My way of thinking, my way of life. Holding on to innocence and I'm still doing everything I can to hold on. End quote. Mary thought that she was free of Singleton. He couldn't find her or get to her while he was in prison. Unfortunately, lenient sentencing laws in place at the time meant that Singleton was eligible for parole after serving a few short years of his sentence. Mary's attacker was paroled after serving just eight years and four months of his 14-year sentence. The public backlash against Singleton's release was deafening. Many towns in California refused to allow him to live in their community. Singleton was forced to spend the entirety of his parole living in a trailer on the grounds of San Quentin Prison. During this period, he was allowed to leave the grounds two or three times a week to shop and for other short excursions. He also joined Alcoholics Anonymous. Singleton blamed Mary for the crime, and upon reflection decided that he, rather than Mary, had been the true victim. We have seen this play out again and again with certain offenders. They either want to further terrorise their victim or are so entrenched in their own delusions and sense of victimhood that they actually start to believe in their own fabricated version of reality. We see both of these extremes in the cases of Michael Sams and Richard Osley. Michael Sams abducted estate agent Stephanie Slater and held her for ransom in 1992. When Stephanie later disclosed that he also sexually assaulted her, Sam sued her for libel from his prison cell. If you haven't already listened to the episode detailing Stephanie's case, you can do that after this episode. Similarly, convicted sex offender Richard Osley abducted and severely abused 13-year-old Paul Martin Andrews in 1973 keeping him in an underground deer box for the duration of his captivity. Years later, Martin would campaign to change legislation to prevent the release of dangerous and violent offenders like Osley. His attacker courted the media and claimed that he had done nothing wrong and was actually Martin's victim. Martin's case will be covered later in the season. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. In Singleton's case, he alleged that Mary had threatened him with false accusations of rape if he didn't drive her to LA. He said that she also threatened him with a weapon, the weapon in question being the sharpened stick she'd found on the floor of the van. According to an article by Laura Allen of Ranker, Singleton decided that this was the reason he had become violent. He unsuccessfully sued Mary Vincent for forcible kidnap for the purposes of robbery. His frivolous suit was dismissed by a Placer County Superior Court. A journalist who had interviewed Singleton remarked that for him, the most surprising aspect of this case was that, quote, Larry Singleton had worked his crimes around in his mind so completely that they did not warrant punishment at all. All. End quote. The 25th of April 1988 marked Lawrence Singleton's final day on the grounds of San Quentin Prison. After he was paroled, he moved back to his home state of Florida, settling in to Orient Park, Tampa. In 1990, Singleton was arrested twice for petty theft. The first charge was for stealing a cheap disposable camera for which he served a 60 day sentence. He was later sentenced to two years in prison for stealing a $3 hat. He only served a few months of his sentence for this crime before being released. On the 19th of February 1997, Roxanne Hayes, a 31-year-old sex worker and mother of three, was lured to Singleton's home in Sulphur Springs, Tampa. A house painter was working on a neighbouring property and watched in horror through the window as a naked man repeatedly stabbed a woman lying unconscious on the blood-stained couch. When police arrived, they found Singleton covered in blood and Roxanne's body covered in multiple stab wounds. Roxanne's 11-year-old daughter had to identify her body. Mary Vincent flew to Florida to testify for the prosecution against Singleton. Mary argued for the death penalty. Singleton was sentenced to death and spent the remaining years of his life on death row. He died of cancer in a hospital in Florida on the 28th of December 2001 before his death sentence could be carried out by the state. Today, Mary is an accomplished artist, victim's advocate, and motivational speaker. In an interview, she said that she remembers that someone asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up. She was four years old at the time and responded that she wanted to be a mother to the world. I think it's safe to say that she has achieved that ambition. Mary credits her belief in God and the love she has for her sons as keeping her going. She says that she is, quote, just glad that I've been given another chance at life, end quote. This podcast was written, researched, produced and narrated by me, Rory Jane McCormick. All episode sources can be found on the episode page on propensitypod.com. You can follow the podcast on Instagram and TikTok at propensitypod. Please share this episode with anyone you think might enjoy it. It really helps to let people know about the podcast. And of course, if you're enjoying the podcast, consider giving a five star rating.